You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is J.M. DeMatteis, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hi, this is the Epic Marvel Podcast, and we are talking about The Defenders. This is a period in 1983. And this is a continuation of our previous episode, which was titled Moon Madness, episode 7A. And uh, this is, the, this is the, the, the last half of the Defenders epic collection called Ashes, Ashes. I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I am your Defenders co-host, Jason Schaff. Jason, what issues are we going to be talking about in this episode? So we're going to be starting in March of 1983 with Defenders 117, and we'll be ending with Defenders 125 in November of 1983. Right. So we're having a pretty good run right on through most of 1983 here. Uh, we, we sort of mentioned this in the last episode, but this is a very transitional volume, and this back half of this epic collection, it's pretty much saying goodbye to one character and saying hello to another in pretty much every issue from here just so that uh, J.M. DeMatteis is now kind of flushing out what he needs to get rid of and stacking his deck so he can move forward with his new defenders. Absolutely, and we're getting uh, slowly introduced to some of the new cast of characters that are going to be coming in for better or for worse. I know among a lot of my defenders' brethren, um, the switch up at the end gets a little controversial. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. But but with the creative team that we have, uh, starring Don Perlin almost exclusively on pencils at this point, and uh, Jam D. Mateus at the writing helm, um, it's a clear vision, it's an interesting one, a compelling one, and it doesn't get afraid to go into some really thought-provoking areas quite a number of times. Oh, that's for sure, yeah. Uh, over and over again in this back half, but they they go into some very thoughtful and deep places. We don't have a whole lot to say because this is, again, a continuation of the previous issue. So before we jump into the the actual issues, I asked to get some comments on this volume of The Defenders, and we got some great responses. So I'm just going to read a few of them here, uh, starting with one comment that uh, showed up on Instagram. This is from Lucas. He says, My first time reading Defenders, and I liked it a lot. Crazy plots, great characters, lots of drama. Nice to see that a corner of the Marvel Universe I knew so little about had so much to offer. I think that's a cool comment. It is, and Lucas is definitely showing himself to be now a man of great intelligence. <laughs> um, the Defenders, yeah, he, he, he's hitting something that a lot of Defenders fans like myself, we wear like a chip on our shoulder. The fact that this comic book had so much to offer, was so thought-provoking, so interesting, 
it was so overlooked, criminally so in its own lifetime mm-hmm. or its own run. Yeah. And so uh, us us defenders, loyalists, we kind of band together in our quiet little corners of the Marvel universe and talk about what could have been and what was. So I'm glad other people are starting to get engaged with it and uh, creak open that door and see what glory is behind it. Over on Twitter, we had um, someone named Doc Strange. That's his Twitter Twitter handle is Billy Delicious. Uh, he. <laughs> <laughs> He has uh, a similar comment to what you were saying here um, about how people feel about moving into this era of the Defenders. He says, for me, this is when the Defenders ended, 125. What followed just wasn't the same. But in this run, we saw some really cool stuff with Son of Satan, the Overmind, etc. Enjoyable content from J.M. DiMatteis and Don Perlin. Yeah, I can agree with a lot of that. Um the new defenders that come in 125 are a very different book than what we have here. But branching off, there's a little thread that started because he tagged uh, J.M. DiMatteis and he actually, J.M. actually commented, he said, thanks for the kind words, which was really nice. I love how J.M. DiMatteis interacts with his fans on social media all the time. If you ever want to talk to him, he is so approachable. Uh, That's fantastic. Yeah. And parts of the page on Twitter also says, I agree with Billy Delicious. The undeniable high point of the series was the J.M. DiMatteis Perlin era, though I like the series as a whole. And then someone else that goes by Let's Talk Comic Book Art says DiMatteis is the Midas of comic writers. Everything he touches is gold. Uh, I can't dispute that. Yeah. I've enjoyed uh, just about everything. Uh, I can't think of anything I haven't really engaged with when it comes to DiMatteis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, parts of the page also has another comment. He says, The Defender's ethos seems to be anything goes. Somehow the book could credibly swing from a cosmic psychic battle with Null the Living Darkness in one issue to a Dr. Seuss pastiche in, an, in the next. <laughs> so very true. That is true. Yeah. That is over true. and over again. Um, yeah, it, at this point, the legacy of the Defenders, when it first starts off, it's a lot of stories about the core four fighting wizards in hot pants, in, in, in tights. So every time it dips its toes back into the realm of weird, it's very much at peace with the origins of the book. That being said, along the road, you get traditional superhero battles, such as one of the great story arcs of the early Defenders when they're fighting the, the Wrecking Crew, and some of the other later fights when they're even going against the, the Avengers, which we kind of talked about in the last issue as well. So this is a book that's legacy and tradition was all over the place, yet that would seem to be a challenge for a lot of the writers, but guys like David Anthony Kraft, Steve Gerber, and now at this point, uh, De Mateus, what makes them so talented is they're able to take all of this potential and still craft some really solid, compelling, and relatable stories out of it. That's right, yeah. On Facebook, we had a few comments as well. Don says, are these some of the weirdest Marvel stories? Yes. But do they still have heart? Yes. And then he lists a few examples, like Devil Slayer, the Devil Slayer story in issue 110, the, the Patsy story in 111, and then also another affecting moment is Damon Hellstrom desperately searching for redemption um, on page 279, uh, 279, issue 120 in this, 
that we're going to be talking about in this episode. And at the same time I was reading The Defenders, I was reading Uncanny X-Men. The latter, of course, was the hit, and the former was the underdog cult favorite, but both featured palpable, relatable human drama. Absolutely. And great characters, and time spent in each issue to focus on the characters. Yeah. Timothy said, great follow-up to Six-Fingered Hand. Dimitrios lays out great character development for characters, particularly the Beast. Ironically, as the story shifted from the supernatural to more standard superhero stories, Dimitrios set himself up to eventually leave the book as his interest in it waned. But overall, a great volume. Would you yeah. say that was his intention, was to bring it to more superhero fare? Um, perhaps. I don't know if he was successful. <laughs> it, 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 if you take that as uh, as a thesis for him, because he, I don't see De Mateus as really being confined to any one particular genre. I think I, I see this particular era of him just kind of going where his fancy is, so long as the characters are treated with the respect they deserve. Hmm, yeah. Um, I mean, there's times where he takes these characters to Tunnel World to. Dr. Seuss world to uh, Earth S with the Squadron Supreme. So there, there's just a little bit of everything going on here. Um, but in lesser hands, that would really lose focus. But in De Mateus's hands, what grounds it is that constant focus on the characters. Right. Okay, last comment, and this is a long one because JC loves to write long comments, um, which is fine with me. It's not a, it's not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. He says, Defenders was a regular title for me back in 82 and 83. I was 12 or 13 years old, and I was mostly interested in the book for its D-list superhero roster. The stories were trippy then and still are a bit trippy for my taste today. I can appreciate the deeper stories now more than I did then, but they're still not my favorite. I'm probably more critical of the Perlin art today than I was as a kid. Still, it's clean and decent comic book fare for the time period. I remember really enjoying the Squadron Supreme storyline. The cover for issue 113 is probably my favorite of this collection. Too many heroes bite your tongue. There was no such thing when I was collecting back then. The more heroes I could get for my 60 cents, the better. But that storyline was was the exception for this title. The heavy occult stories or the Devil Slayer Sunshine Tale or the trip to Dr. Seuss Universe weren't my cup of tea, and I likely would have dropped the title if it weren't for the inclusion of the Beast. At that point, I was a huge X-Men fan and was committed to buying every appearance of the X-Men in any other title. Adding Iceman and Angel obviously cemented this title in my pull box at the comic store, but it wasn't ever at the top of my reading list. I was a little relieved when this title ended in the wake of X-Factor a few years later. Overall, I'm still glad to own this volume. It was nostalgic to visit these characters and stories again, even if the themes were deeper than my usual reading. Looking forward to he to listening to your podcast and hearing your thoughts. Uh, fantastic. JC also is a man of genius-level intelligence <laughs> and taste. <laughs> Although, uh, he and I could park in the same garage, except that uh, I tended to prefer the Defenders over X-Factor when that book came out. Hmm. Uh, but that's just my personal taste. Oh, sure. Now that we've covered that, why don't we jump into our issues? Defenders number 117. Do you want to start things off or do you want me to? I'll start it off. Sure. 
Ooh, this is March 1983. The title of this particular one is called The Gift. And so there's going to be a character spotlight on The Overmind. So to pick us up with The Overmind, Overmind at this point has, I believe, six different powerful psychic minds that are trapped in his eight-foot-tall, freaky-looking body. And in this issue, we're going to get to the point where Overmind is having trouble identifying who he is or figuring out what exactly he is. And as a result of this, we go on a couple of journeys with him to explore these, the memories of these um, particular identities within him. So we go to a kid who got bullied. We go to the ghetto where uh, a female African-American character is traumatized by her terrible experience there. And it begs the question, and here's one of the big questions. Does the Overmind fit? Does he belong in this title? What's your impression, Curtis? Well, visually, he definitely stands out, although there's not really a consistent look between any of the characters. But just the fact that he's huge makes him kind of an odd duck. The personality, I I feel like J.M. DeMatteis was trying to make Overmind into the wisdom-type character in the book. You know how, mm-hmm. like, uh, um, man, I think the only thing I can think off the top of my head is like Giles from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> Great reference. He's he's there. He's a presence. He doesn't really get totally involved in a lot of the action, but he's there to impart wisdom and keep kind of characters from, I don't know, self-destructing or, or keep the team from going apart. That's what I feel like he like Demetrius is kind of try to do here but never really accomplishes that. Yeah, Overmind to me is a head scratcher. I know yeah. that having a psychic character kind of fit a niche in the book at the time and Professor X and later Moon Dragon is having characters with the psychic ability opens up story options that you don't otherwise have. The problem is I feel that he works so much better as a villain. He has a compelling visual look that lends itself to villainy. Um, Just the sheer size of him is compelling as an opponent. But if I am going to speak to him as a hero, one thing that is kind of interesting about him is that he breaks the traditional trope of the psychic as being somehow impaired physically. Um, Because here's this big figure. You would think that he'd be bench pressing cars and throwing and doing physical stuff. But you know his key is his mind, and but most psychics, especially male psychics, female tended to female characters tend to get cast into the role of the psychic far more often than males. And when they do, they usually they're very weak males or damaged in some way. Professor X, for example, and modern day Quentin Choir. To to contrast though the power of their mind, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Um, and Legion's another kind of interesting right. example of that. But then you have, I think, I feel like you have that in Overmind as well, because he has six personalities that are uh, sometimes, you know, at odds with each other. Like we don't know who's in control or if they're trying, if there's an internal struggle. Uh, Legion, of course, plays that up a whole lot more with his multiple yeah. personalities. Um, and overmind's just not around long enough to develop that any further but we get a little bit in that in this issue and as i understand with overmind more recent 
incarnations of him has returned him to his villainous ways, which I kind of feel he belongs. Yeah. Uh, he just doesn't quite. There's some comical scenes with him later on where he goes out to dinner and he's wearing a suit, but he's just this, <laughs> this enormous, enormous figure at the table. It, and I think traditionally when it comes to heroes, they tend not to be big with the exception maybe of the Hulk or the thing, but the heavy just because it lends himself to a, a, an era of vulnerability that we don't quite get with the, with the overmind. A um, couple of things about this issue that are worth visiting. The opening of this issue is really quite touching as they finally start saying goodbye to Nighthawk. Right. And as someone who is not a fan of Nighthawk, this is where I finally was able to take a sigh of relief and say, I think he's finally gone. I think, <laughs> I think I'm free of this guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is where Overmind's story starts because, of course, one of the personalities in his head is Mindy. So we get yeah. closure between the Mindy and Kyle relationship that was very strained uh, in in the past volume. Uh, we finally get both of these characters sort of laid to rest. It's interesting, her dialogue, too. Um, on the bottom of 207, I'm going to kind of just read a little bit of it. That love drove me mad, Kyle. And it's taken this fusion, this rebirth, as a new life form to bring me the balance and clarity that always seemed to elude me. I found happiness, Kyle, but I had to take this form, or at least the illusion of form, one last time. It almost seems like Mindy, the Mindy personality, is kind of still blaming herself, even though... I guess she causes the death at the end, but he drove her insane. He drove her into the literally into the insane asylum yeah. in the first place. Um, and I think that that's fun too because there's so many relationships in the Defenders that are dysfunctional as all heck <laughs> and, and problematic in in many ways. And this is one of them. But at least this, at this point, we get to say goodbye to it, and there's a little bit of closure to it. Yeah, I like the idea of this being a catalyst for the Overmind of trying to bring closure to all of his different personalities, characters, uh, which is kind of nice too. Because if we'd if you've read the previous volume and that story in Captain America, even before that, the the story with the kid back in Captain America and and the other the African American woman was fantastic. Uh, we have some yes. good characters, so it's cool to see them come back. And, you know, they they just disappeared. And especially for the kid, like his parents have no idea where he went. He just vanished. And even though that doesn't end very well for for the kid, unfortunately, um, it's actually no. quite a touching moment when he when his family rejects him because he he can't be he can't be real. They think um, it's it's still nice to be able to. To revisit this guy, and to to show that the Overmind is a he's a tortured character. He has so many different personalities inside of him, and each one of them has their own sadness. I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Something else I want to visit on this is a couple of things I want to visit on this issue. Um, spending maybe too much time, more time on this issue, but it's a setting. This is an issue that sets up a lot of things. Yeah. One thing I love about this particular run or era under De Mateus is his focus on female friendship. This is a book that bucks a lot of some of the faults that we see in other 
books, especially of the time, in terms of how they treat their female characters. In this book, there's a lot of time spent with just the two female characters who are in our team at this time, Valkyrie and Hellcat, dealing with the way their friendship evolves and changes, which is really quite refreshing. I mean, I think that only Claremont's X-Men spends as much time focusing on the relationship of the female characters as it does, as this one does. And to really draw attention to this, if I can focus us on some more dialogue on page 225 in the mill, we have this scene where Valkyrie has now been changed. She's become the Asgardian Broomhilda as opposed to the Barbara Norris. And is having a hard time for a Hellcat adjusting to this. But there's this great, in the middle boxes, there's this great bit of dialogue where Valkyrie's explaining herself. Um, but the Valkyrie thou didst know remains here inside me, as much a part of me as the immortal warrior goddess. And to both of us, there is not a solitary soul on earth or in the realm eternal whose friendship means more. And then they, they, the page ends with them embracing. And I just think that that's a really nice, touching way to approach the, the uh, often overlooked female relationships in this book. One of the guilty problems of this book that I had when I first started re-engaging with it was the first incarnation of the Defenders, the four, they were such, they were characters that were so different. Uh, Doctor Strange, Hulk, Namor, Silver Surfer, that they had a hard time, I had a hard time in believing in the, the friendship of those guys. But now that we're 117 issues in, friendship really seems to be something that De Mateus, at least, is very concerned about and does so in a very compelling way. Very believable. The characters that he's placed in his team here, um, they lend themselves to that as well. If you take a look at the Hulk, Namor, Dr. Shane, Silver Surfer, those are all characters that are they're withdrawn in certain ways. They are they're standoffish. They don't make friends easily, so it is kind of odd that they band together, which is maybe why they never bec really become officially a team. Yeah. But now, yeah, with these characters here, we see that uh, a lot more. And with other softer characters like the Beast and like Gargoyle and such, we we have a good group of friends. This is definitely uh, a, um, a pseudo family in, in many ways. Yes. Um, by the time we get we get through this. And the final thing I want to say about this particular issue is, oh, boy. The Elf with a Gun. Okay, so, um, okay, because I haven't read the first bunch of, like, the first half of The Defenders, I've only started with J.M. DiMatteis's run. The Elf is a character from way back, right? Okay, so The Elf first appears in issue 25. This is when Gerber was running, uh, writing the title. And he would just appear at the back of a book and shoot somebody and disappear. And then in issue 46... As Gerber's leaving the title, he gets run over by a truck. <laughs> there was no rhyme, no reason. I remember even talking to David Anthony Kraft, who takes over the book afterwards. And Kraft is also one of these guys who's very accessible, um, especially over Facebook. And I asked him, like, was, when you took over the book, was there any kind of instructions or notes? And his response to me was that Gerber oftentimes just threw things at the wall and 
if it works, it works. If not, it not. And he thought it was very funny at the time to do so. So this had just been this dangling plot line for over 60 issues that DeMatteis now all of a sudden picks up. So strange. It is. <laughs> it is quite strange, but we're going to have to deal with the elf and the gun for quite a few more issues. Oh, man, and in a big way coming up. It, it, <laughs> it's, it amazes me how significant a player this character actually is. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it's let's a head scratcher. Yeah, let's keep on going here. Uh, yeah, yeah, we should keep on going. And this is issue number one eighteen. The title of this one is called "The Double." Damon goes back to his old university where he used to work, only to find that someone who looks exactly like him has his job and has his office and has his girlfriend, who happens to be now his wife. He doesn't know what's going on. I love it. I think this is such a great mm-hmm. mystery at the beginning. It opens with a, a shock, um, and you don't know what's going on, and you you feel as confused as Damon does. It's great, great writing. And then when they confront each other, and there's two Damons in the, in the room at the same time, it's just fantastic. Really great writing from this. Uh, if Eventually, we find out that it's actually a demon that uh, Satan has... Um, expelled from wherever, like hell or something. And, and he's just taken up <laughs> Damon because Damon left his position. He said, oh, I might as well. I have nowhere else to go. I'm going to take his spot and keep on, keep on, uh, you know, create a life for myself. <laughs> I'm glad you, uh, I'm glad you have such a positive response to this issue because me too. This is okay, good. Yeah, it, it's fantastic. really good. I love that the demon is actually a better Damon than Damon is. Yes, that's right. <laughs> better the job, better with the girlfriends, um, Seraph, better <laughs> with the students. It's fantastic. And this is really, I mentioned in the last episode that each issue deals with identity. And of course, last one, last issue was Overmind's identity. But this one really brings about uh, Damon's identity because as he sees this demon be a better Damon than he is, he starts to question who he is or what his place is. Um, is it because of his powers that have changed him so much? Um, if he didn't have them, would he still be? Would he still be able to go back into the life that he had before? Uh, we don't know. He doesn't. He doesn't have any idea. And it sends him on a journey that's now going to take place uh, over the next couple of issues uh, to to figure out what his place is in the world. Yeah. Damon is a he's a boy. Is he a tricky character? Yeah. Page two thirty nine. It's like he's a tricky character to like because he's so close to abusive to those around him. In two thirty nine, when his ex girlfriend, who's now in love with the other demon version of him, kind of rejects him, he slaps this pot of boiling water or pasta away. Don't lie to me, sir. If you know who I am you know who I am and she's on the <laughs> ground and he's lording over her looking powerful yeah <laughs> yeah there's, he, this is not the first time he knocks a girl down um, he does it to Hellcat in our previous discussion the previous uh, episode we talked about it he always uses his transformation as um, a fear agent mm-hmm. he tries to he uses it to in- purposely to intimidate it's like you think I'm scary now? Just check out this. And he turns into, you know, son of Satan. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, great issue. Great issue. 
Um, his girlfriend or his wife's name is Serifa, or Serifa. I don't know how you pronounce that. Yes, yeah, Serifa is a, looks like a good good interpretation. I think so. Yeah, um, but definitely a play on the 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 word Seraph or Seraphim, which is an angel. So it's an interesting contrast that you have the person with an angel name in love with Son of Satan or a demon. Uh-huh. Look at you, Curtis, bringing the extra knowledge to this <laughs> podcast. That's right. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I also love how it ends. It just ends. I mean, you can almost feel for Damon at this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine this happens to you or you end up encountering somebody who's better at you than you. And it ends like the like a French movie from the 1950s with him just walking down a dark street, sitting on a bench and having himself a good cry. I also like that he he spares the demon's life because because it makes his girlfriend happy. Um, like he doesn't say that he's going to do that or anything, He but he's all ready to, to just kill this demon. And Sarifa uh, jumps in and and stops him from doing that uh and i think damon realizes at this point like you know she's happy and even if he comes back the true damon it's no longer him that she's in love with so he can't uh, he can't take that away from her because he still loves her i wonder if there's been a update on this story it seems like this would be one of those stories that would be ripe for some sort of revisits uh, somewhere down the line i should have should have done a little research on that one ahead of time mm-hmm I bet the it'd be especially with some of the 1990s Hellstrom series. Right. I guess they've moved away from Son of Satan now. I love the inks in this issue. We have some mm. really really moody moody inks. I especially I pointed out the the page already that where Damon is um, confronting himself for the first time on page 234 235, which is page six and seven in this issue. Mm-hmm. I just love the 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 blacks of his shirt with the just the dark shadows on the faces and that kind of thing. It, it's really different than if you look back at just even the last issue. Uh, the the inks were were so different and made it look a lot lighter and rounder. And this one is much darker and more gritty. It's also interesting to look at uh, on those two pages you're citing how reflections are playing such a key role, whether starting yeah. on 234 with the looking into the picture, right. then into the mirrors, and that's revisited on 235 again, and even looking into the eyes as mm-hmm. another mirror into the soul. Yeah, that's it's an interesting thread that carries through this scene. Really creative way of telling the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. Mm. Should we go into uh, 119? Yep, let's do it. All right, so this is Ashes, Ashes, We All Fall Down. And this is a weird issue. I didn't like it. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think that this is an issue that was a, a drawer issue. It absolutely was, yeah. Then reworked into something um, into something modern. It's written by or it's, it's written by Stephen Grant and then touched up by De Mateus. The penciler is Sal Buscema, and uh, we have Jack Abel on inks. And apparently what they want to do is tell us an older story or at least use up this issue by putting it into the spin of a modern story. So we have Luann, who goes before the tribune, tribunal. Um, that was last seen in issue 87, so way back 
when they were interviewing Jack Norris, Valkyrie, former Valkyrie, Barbara Norris's husband. He was a character that was in the early issues, and thank goodness he's gone as well. He was, he was annoying. <laughs> we are revealed that Luann is actually a robot. She was Nighthawk's nurse for quite a, a few uh, pages when Nighthawk got, um, was disabled and put into a wheelchair. Right. And um, apparently she's been recording these stories, and she goes before the tribunal to show off the story that essentially has a villain who looks like a third-grade teacher I once had <laughs> um, getting revenge upon the, uh, the defender's for the destruction of Omegatron. Omegatron is a villain that has a long history. First appeared in 1971, Marvel feature number one, the first appearance of the Defenders in and of themselves. So at least there has its feet in the waters of Defenders lore and legacy. Mm -hmm. But there's not much else to go on no, on this one. there really isn't. It's just uh, the, the whole issue is pretty much just a big battle. And yeah. not even that interesting of a battle. No, I can't can't find much good to say about it. Um, the art by Sal, I usually really engage with Sal's art, Sal, Sal Buscema's art, but not so much in this particular issue. Um, I would think that Jack Abel would be really good on Sal because Jack tends to have much more heavy inks, but they're not really present here. Yeah, and but I was also surprised that the big the big reveal of Luann Bloom being a robot is in, not only is it in this issue, but it's like on the second page. I thought that would have been a last page kind of reveal, but no, we get it right at the beginning here because they use this robot as the framing sequence for this story. Um, I'm pretty sure that this, this story works here um, with the framing sequence because it was only probably about 17 pages long because the page count of comics in the 70s uh, was shorter than it was in the 80s. They had reduced the page count for a number of years. So there are a lot of inventory stories that uh, were kind of in the filing cabinet that were 17 pages long. And they had to expand them in some ways in order to make them fit a m the modern comic size at the time, mo modern comic mm -hmm. length at the time. So that's why we have a couple pages before and a couple pages after in order to round out that page count to yep. what would otherwise be a very succinct story. Um, also, if you look at the at the back of the book, uh, there's a bonus feature. I don't have the, the page, um, but it's the it's the splash page, this ashes to ashes splash page, the original art for it. Oh, I see. Yeah. And you can see down by um, Yandroth's foot and Hulk's foot, you can see where the original line for the panel was. Um, Interesting. And they had to add more art to extend to the bottom because usually if this was actually a fill-in issue for the 70s, all of the legal stuff, the copyright information and such would have been at the bottom of this page. So they had uh, drawn the line a little higher and when they realized that it's not going to be that splash page anymore, they had to extend the art all the way down to the bottom of the page. Give Hulk a foot. Yep. <laughs> Great. That's Great. right. I didn't even notice that. That's fantastic. Um, the last page is pretty pretty interesting, I guess. <laughs> Tying into this elf with a gun in the tribunal story. Yep. Big splash page. Defenders must be destroyed or time itself will die. 
Yeah, that's interesting. And um, unfortunately, the conclusion is not as interesting as the no. <laughs> as this part <laughs> no, it is isn't. here. Uh, but it says that this is the beginning of the end, and that is true. Uh, things start ramping up here as we move into the next issue. Oh, but we have a great two two issue story arc to deal with. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So number one twenty. This one is called Sanctuary. Oh, one last point. I'm I'm kind of a little miffed that the collection, this epic collection, is called Ashes Ashes, and it takes the title from the lamest issue in this book. It does, but it has one of the best covers. Yes, but they don't it use that cover. Oh, <laughs> um, With the homage to... To X-Men 100, that's right. X-Men 100, right. Um, Terry Austin, interesting, I think, connection. Was he on X-Men 100? Did he do the cover there? But he, Because he's inking on this cover. Oh, yeah. I don't know if he d- did or not. I, I'd have to look that up. Yeah, he might have With been. Juan Wilson as the um, actual artist for it. Yeah, um, I love. I always like Ron Wilson's work. He's an underrated, uh, totally uh, artist in my opinion. Yeah, his work on yeah. the thing was excellent. Oh, fantastic! Okay, sorry, forgot that I wanted to mention that here. So, issue number one twenty, Sanctuary. Damon is. Oh, uh, that would have been a better title. That would have been a way <laughs> better title. Sure, sure. Pretty much any other title in this book the next issue is called um or the two issues down the road is called uh, things to come that would have been a good one too oh yeah that, that, that's evocative so damon is has made his way to some sort of monastery uh where he wants uh just some sanctuary as the title says i guess this is a place where he used to belong at a time he knows the father who's here the the, the priest and um, he's trying to. He's here so that he can figure out who he is. He doesn't really want his powers anymore. I think he's trying to figure a way to get rid of those as well. But he meets this guy, Brother Joshua, and right away we know something's up with this guy because, you know, why do we get introduced to characters if they're not important? <laughs> yeah. This this issue, it took me um, a few tries to read through just because there's just a lot of very dense conversation and um, unfortunately I don't often get large chunks of time to read for myself I have to read when my you know kids are running around and so mm-hmm. it's, it was really hard to concentrate while reading this book but there's some really cool things here we, we find out that the that brother Joshua is actually the miracle man and the miracle man is a character that goes way back to the very very early days of the Fantastic yep. Four and only pops up like once a decade because no one really cares about this character. Um, in his previous appearance in Marvel 2-in-1 number 8, which I talked about in my Marvel 2-in-1 episode. That was a wild issue. I remember it was almost, that was the Ghost Rider one. Yeah, and... it was the Ghost Rider one. No, he had, there was a baby who was, who who he claimed was the Messiah, and he was the father of the baby, which made him God. Yeah. And in but in this issue, as a complete contrast, he manages to take Damon's dark powers, and so he kind of becomes the devil. Uh, so he tries to go about world conquest the complete opposite way. First, the 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 Marvel two in one issue, he wanted to get world conquest by becoming the savior of the world, and this one he wants to use his dark powers to lord over the world um, with an iron fist. Hmm. 
It's amazing that he, when he first started out, if memory serves me right, he was just a special effects guy. Yeah. Who <laughs> was doing, making things like he was robbing down the street. Yeah, he was robbing <laughs> banks with his illusions and stuff like that. And now he's like taking on supernatural powers and achieving godlike status. You know, it's my goodness. Yeah. What a journey for this guy. And true to the decade that he's in, he's also now wearing a outdated disco outfit. Oh, man. <laughs> I suppose <laughs> one way to describe what he's wearing. I love this issue. Yeah. This might be, of this particular run that we're going to be looking at, this two-story arc for me is, is just fantastic. And I know you mentioned the dialogue. And, the, and when I tend to read my comic books, it's usually the last thing I'm doing in the day. So as I'm getting ready to go to sleep, I read my comics. And I can sympathize with you because while this dialogue is engaging, yeah. it is dense. Very dense. But, but it is also incredibly expressive and really starts cutting to the soul of these characters. So if I can engage with some of the dialogue sure. on page 279, where you have Hellstrom coming before uh, Father Gossett. This is the guy that he spent some time with. He's this person he really trusts. He's hoping to kind of refine himself through. But when he reveals himself on the previous page, uh, Father Gossett's response is, you know, kind of recoils at it. Dear God, is this line. And then we get this this wonderful bit of exchange in the upper left panel. Do you see? Even you recoil in terror at my true face. Even you sense that I am. And all we shall be nothing but a creature of hell. What a fool I am to seek a normal life. But as that dialogue picks up and they go back and forth between Father Gossett, that last panel, the bottom, which occupies two-thirds of the page, that's some powerful stuff. Yeah. Him kneeling before, help me believe. The cross feature prominently, the, the light of the candles, magnificent in the way that it creates the illuminescence on the page. Really powerful stuff. I mean, this is cutting. Cutting right down into the soul of the character of Damon Hellstrom. Yeah. Yeah, it's, and it's so fitting that he is in a monastery doing this. Because mm. what better way to wrestle with matters of his own spiritual powers than to be in a place where, you know, these are this is where the experts are, I, I guess you could say. Sure. And, um, you know, and, and even when we meet up with uh, the Miracle Man, he's there also trying to find some sort of inner peace. Yeah. We got some great inkers on this one. So this is Jack Abel at his best, in my opinion, where you have these heavy heavy lines or heavy uh, heavy shading put into it. But also we're going to get a person who's going to be a fantastic influence on this book um, a little bit later and certainly cutting into the uh, new Defenders line, and that's Kim DeMolder. Right. Really cut his chops with DC and in particular with the um, brilliant second volume of uh, Swamp Thing. So you know this guy knows how to put together some... Uh, some shading and some texture to a page. Definitely. So we're first starting to get, get, get some of him here. I love. I would also talk about um, what happens when um, the Miracle Man takes the power of Damon, which is really quite fascinating. On 291, you get the sense of just how much of a monster this guy can be as he's toying with these monks by floating them, flying them up through the air, mocking them 
as the angels they so wish to be, well, then I'll make you fly like one. Um, it turns people to dust, which is, in my mind, kind of almost becomes evocative in terms of how the art interprets it of turning people to salt. Right. Um, Gamora style. Yeah, yeah. And then even on 295, when he takes the pentagram and really absorbs the power of, uh, of Damon. Powerful page. Yeah, you get the feeling that there is, I don't know, you, you get the, the feeling of the power that these two characters are fighting over through the the positions, the stance, the, the shading, the inking, even the, the colors. You, you feel, you just feel the force between these two people. It's, it's such an excellent battle. And this is mm. what was missing in the previous issue with the Sal Buscema art. Um, I you have extremely powerful characters in there like Hulk and Namor fighting each other, but you don't get the sense of that power as you do in this little scene right here. Sure. It's not personal, right? It's just this odd looking character from, uh, that looks like my third grade teacher. <laughs> yeah. But on yeah. this one, you do have these, these characters and the stakes are really high here. The stakes are Damon learning what that, dark soul really means because you get the sense here of just how much she's probably been having to absorb this control this tamp down that power because once miracle man gets it oh he's off to the races (laughs) now he can really utilize this for some major shakeups across the world if he needs to Mm -hmm. and so I think that's fascinating just to see what the potential of Damon could have been if he were to give himself up to evil. And in that sense, it almost redeems him a little bit. Because I've mentioned a couple of times how it's almost hard, hard to be on Team Damon, especially in the problematic way he treats some of the females in his life. Right. But maybe this kind of doesn't excuse it, but makes us understand it. Yeah, he doesn't go full-on evil. He doesn't get to this level. And even when he's treating those women poorly, um, I wonder how much of a struggle it is to hold back and not do more harm. Absolutely. And it always seems like he, you know, the last thing he does on these panels when he does something awful, throwing Hellcat to the ground or Seraph to the ground, is runs away, gets away quickly. Yeah. Then you know it's almost like you know you, you get mad, you want to lash out, just walk away. It's always the best option, and we're kind of seeing that with Hellstrom. Only with him, if he were to give in, well, the power that the Miracle Man seems to be now wielding could be his, and that wouldn't be a good thing at all. Yeah. Well, let's keep on going here. Number one twenty-one. All right. So issue one twenty-one. This one comes from July of 1983 and is titled Savior, which I think is a fun title to play around with. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, the Defenders, in the last issue, we got some hints of Hellcat's mental powers, which are come, they come and go as plot needs throughout the, uh, the time that she spends on the book. 
And in this particular case, she gets the they use the mental powers to track down Hellstrom. And so they defenders hop into their Quinjet, start making their way over, and you get this great scene. I really popped on the scene on 229, or 299 rather, where these statues appear, these monk-like statues to block the passage of the Quinjet. But ultimately, they're going to then fight ice monsters. But when they finally come up against the Miracle Man, it seems that Miracle Man has sort of tamped down maybe some of the impulses of the Dark Soul. Because now he thinks he can use it for good. Right. To prove this, takes the heroes off to Java, where he's decided, I'm going to cure poverty, overpopulation. I'm going to cure all these things. And, of course, it doesn't work out that way because the people don't really want that. And when they reject it, on page 312, there's this brutal scene of this poor fella um, who's simply coming to him saying, I can't accept your gracious gifts. And, well, Miracle Man turns him into a demon of some kind. Uh, kills him, I, I suppose. And then that sets off a chain of reaction that leads to a big throwdown fight with him. But what really shines in this is some of the debate that we get, in particular on page 303, over maybe how power should be used in this. What is power versus what is free will? Yeah. Which I, I thought was really quite, quite engaging with. Am I right on page 303? Or am I wrong on that? Sorry about that. Uh, 308, I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 that's right. 308. Because it's once they're on Java. Yeah, yeah, some of these are, some of these are fantastic. So if I could point to some dialogue on, on the bottom left-hand panel, um, Miracle Man's explaining some of these. And so I shall do what neither man nor God has done before. I shall end poverty, starvation, and war, transform this planet into a paradise where peace is not an anomaly and brotherhood is far more than empty phrase. And then, of course, Hellstrom's like, look at the chest! He has the devil symbol on <laughs> But it is But uh, it sets off an interesting debate, and it seemed to have been something in the zeitgeist, because this is, of course, what the Squadron Supreme is going to be dealing with heavily uh, with that limited series. Yes. So yeah. I thought it was kind of fun. Um, that they play around with that a little bit. I think it's interesting that Damon points out the star on his chest, saying, he, he, and the dialogue is like, look, all of you at what he hides, the mark of the devil, so long mind to bear, is now burned into the Miracle Man's chest. Uh, to say that, like, you can't trust this guy because he has this symbol on him, but shouldn't. but what he's saying is that you guys should never have trusted me when I had that symbol. Yeah, <laughs> it's a interesting uh, dichotomy on that one. In that, in that it's like don't don't trust him, but trust me. I I know how to do it. Right. I know how to wield it. Um, one thing that's uh, that also again kind of return to Overmind on three thirteen. We have Overmind's going to try and take on Miracle Man, and here's one of the problems I have with with Overmind. You have to make him much less than what his potential is, and so he pretty much gets slapped aside by yeah. Miracle Man here, when normally in a villainous role, he would, of course, be much more imposing and terrific. Well, I, I would chalk that up to the inexperience of the minds that he's in, 
because none of yeah. those people are fighters or really want to have anything to do with that. It just happens to be the circumstance that they're in. But I think really the point of Overmind being cast aside is to raise up Hellcat. Because at the end of the issue, it's Hellcat joining with her mental powers, joining Overmind to together defeating the, like, uh, expelling the Dark Soul out of Miracle Man. Mm. And so we have been hinting for the last few issues that her powers are coming back, and now we just see just how powerful Hellcat has become. Unfortunately, we don't get much more of it. No, that's right. Yeah, I got I got something to say about uh, towards especially towards the end, um, her send off of the book. But yeah, we'll put a pin in that for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, on page three seventeen is is fun because this is where Damon has to tempt the hell uh, the Dark Soul back into him, and he starts speaking directly to the Dark Soul, like, "Hey, you know, come back to me, come back home." I love Hellcat's reaction at the bottom there. Just Damon, no. It kind of shows, or it gives me a feeling of a little tender love between them. Yeah, she course, realizes that he's again sacrificing himself in order to spare yeah. the world of Miracle Man. Yeah. Then ah, turning the uh, and when the Dark Soul of course leaves, that's when Overmind and and Hellcat combine and turn it into a snake. Um, the last panel is kind of. Kind of interesting, though, where it belongs. And you see that thing just looking menacing and creeping through. <laughs> and yeah. As we know, Hellstrom does come back, and he does have the pentagram. Yep. And he will be uh, up to his old ways a little bit later on. The reference of where it belongs is uh, definitely a, a biblical reference. Because in the Adam and Eve story, what Satan... Uh, God turns Satan into the form of a snake, the serpent that tempts Eve to eat the apple. Mm. So they've put, there's a snake that kind of is, he is lurking about in the background of some of these panels and they put the dark soul into the snake. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. One last thing about this issue I particularly liked, and it is on page 303, and that is um, the philosophical difference or shift that's starting to take root in this book with the beast in inclusion, with the idea being that, you know, as a team, we should start cooperating, we should start training and practicing. But I love that the response that comes from uh, Valkyrie <laughs> at the suggestion that beast should be the leader, yeah. and she says, and if we have need of a leader, do you not think Broomhilda would be more appropriate choice than you. Yeah, right. Peace <laughs> is like, hey, I was only trying to. <laughs> oh boy, did she put him in his place? <laughs> and it's going to be a fun thing that's going to carry on for quite a few more issues, even going forward. Is who's actually going to be the leader as we start coming up with this team concept? Mm -hmm. And Valkyrie does. There, there, there is some tension between those that are going to carry on uh, several times coming forward on this. Moving next to things to come, uh, with a this is Defenders number one twenty two with a fantastic cover. I just love this horse that Valkyrie's riding, mm. and this the 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 shaft of light that's in the background. Unfortunately, there's this elf in the middle of it that kind of ruins the cover. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> the elf ruins a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, this is the start actually of the fantastic covers 
that are going to carry the series to to its end. Yeah. I think it's a, a, a you can kind of point to this point to say all right from from this point on maybe they were thinking that if we really spice up the covers um, it'll start selling books and while this one is by Perlin some of the later ones are going to be by uh, or going to be influenced by Bill Sienkiewicz is going to be featuring on there Sandy Plunkett oh, the next issue is going to be on there and Kevin Nolan yeah I remember as a kid being being transfixed by those covers and they certainly got me to spend my hard-earned 60 cents <laughs> back in those days with my very limited budget just because these covers are so evocative and that's why modern covers are the way that they are now too all of them are little mini posters mm-hmm. that uh, entice you they don't really tell you anything about what's going on but they sure look cool yeah yeah, so in this issue here, we have the first little bit is just the wrap up from the the previous battle, and um, Patsy and Damon have a great moment where they kind of um, figure out, like they say what they need to say to each other, and we think it's going to go one way, but then they come to their senses and it comes, it goes the other way. They're they're back together again. They're happy. Damon no longer has the dark soul that's torturing him. So I think he feels like he can be more free with her, even though he was trying to be um, the one that was uh, holding things together in the previous issue or not the previous issue, a few issues ago, but uh, Hellcat, I think through this ordeal has also come to realize just how much Damon means to her. So she's willing to get, jump back into things as well. Yeah. Otherwise, the rest of this issue is very laid back. There's no actual fighting or bad guys or anything like that. It is all um, all setting the stage for what's coming. Damon and Patsy announce their engagement and their, their intention to marry. And they also say that they're going to leave. And that sets off a whole bunch of different emotions from a whole bunch of different people. Um, probably most notably is Valkyrie, who is really hurt by the fact that they're getting married and that they're leaving. And we had that touching moment between the two of them in the in the, a few issues ago. And they seem to um, have made amends from their little, uh, you know, b- both of the, what would, uh, what am I trying to say here? Um, because of what was happening in both of their lives. And, yeah. But now this is kind of, driving something between them again and I don't know if it's just me but I really get a sense of like I think some homosexual subtext to their relationship that makes sense um, I believe Valkyrie in more recent incarnations has actually become um, a gay character a lesbian character okay um, if not maybe um, bisexual but there certainly does seem to be some subtext going on here of a certain level of jealousy. That's what I think is because why would she have such a strong reaction to them getting married if Valkyrie herself wasn't in love with Patsy? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe the naive part of me would just love to believe that this is (laughs) uh, just a pure female friendship without that subtext. Because um, all too often, one of the things that drives me a little bit crazy in sci-fi is whenever you are presented with a very strong woman, um, so often they fall into the lazy writing of making that very strong physical type of 
a female character um, gay or lesbian, as if a softer one can't be as strong. Right. Um, and so that's disappointing, at least for me personally. But I, I understand. I can see that that perhaps that's also beneficial or a step forward in other ways. Right. Does that makes sense. But I, I would say, if their friendship was so strong, then it wouldn't matter if she, like, they can still be good friends, even best friends, if she's getting married to Damon. Unless she has some other huge issue with Damon, which I don't think she does. It just seems... I see why it she just would. Seems, well, for sure. Um, I, yeah, but, I can it's, see, but it's not expressed. It's not expressed, and Damon's a different person now through everything that he's gone through. He doesn't have his powers anymore. It just seems like a really harsh reaction. And if you go to one uh, page 331, when Patsy's getting, Patsy and Damon are getting in the cab to go away... And Patsy's um, sad that you know Val didn't come back to say goodbye, and then sees her on the on the rooftop, and and Val has tears in her eyes, yeah. as if she knows that it's either that she thinks that she'll never see Patsy again, or that she's you know her the the love of her life is you know not attainable anymore. Yes, I know it's a time uh, where these sort of issues couldn't be more better explored yeah you almost wish that they were right um i think comics would have been better if they were able to explore some of those issues speaking of that subtext though how do we approach the former x-men the beast <laughs> Iceman, <laughs> angel trifecta i mean that is so page- funny too yeah 333 as soon as Iceman shows up Beast is jumping into his arms <laughs> and kiss me come on cutie pucker up and I remember re- re- when I reread this last year and, 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 and it's going to be kind of much more prevalent when we start getting into the new defenders especially when Cloud makes the scene and Cloud yeah. we're going to talk about him her in a moment right but there was always the joke um, and it's a shame that it, to call it a joke, but it was always that that kind of rumor or joke that Iceman, as far back as as, as as this time, I remember people making the joke that you know he's, he's he's gay. Yeah, I imagine that a lot of that suggestion, and of course now he is gay, but I imagine a lot of that suggestion is actually going to come out of the Defenders. This particular starting it here and going forward, because there's a lot of times, and I look forward to exploring this topic a little bit in a little bit more depth when we get to the new Defenders. Sure. Um, eventually, in, a, in particular, when it comes to Cloud, which is a interesting character as well. We're, I'm not, we shouldn't go into too much of it no, here because no. it's not yet revealed in this what the nature of Cloud is. But there's some, some interesting subtext of Cloud when, when we talk about the new Defenders at some point. Hopefully, I'm getting people interested in hearing this. <laughs> <laughs> so we can do some redemption for the new Defenders <laughs> that they, they definitely need. But yeah... If we believe that their themes are consistently played, so we got the Valkyrie subtext theme, then maybe this is also playing with the Iceman subtext theme. Yeah, could be. It's even more prevalent in the next issue when Angel comes around. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's odd. It's just, there's this scene in here as well, 336, where they are 
watching <laughs> Gargoyle take a bath. Like, uh, and Ice Man's even scrubbing his back <laughs> <laughs> in the bubble bath. <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, Nothing odd to see here, folks. No, it's kind of strange. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mean all, all guys don't get together and take bubble baths? <laughs> I don't but, know. But, I mean, if, you can, if we can look at this even, even further, I mean, we have Overmind, who is an androgynous character because there are male and female personalities within his his own mind. And then, yeah, we're, we'll talk about Cloud later. Um, but I think, I don't know if this is something... When I, I got to talk to JMD and Mateus about, about this book, I got to set up oh, an interview yeah, with him. please do. And, and bring up this in particular because uh, I, I feel like there's definitely some intentionality in this, in this, in the language that he uses, in the way that he portrays these characters. Absolutely. I've... I, I didn't spot it when I was a kid, but in my reread, yeah, it's there. Um, and you don't have to look too hard to find. No, I don't think some so. Some of this, some of the subtext that's going on here. Uh, the last thing I, I think is fun about this particular issue, and I love these. I always love these these kind of character issues where they're all just not much happens except that the characters get together and we get to spend time with the characters. I always kind of like that on page 338 one of my favorite things about this issue is that apparently gargoyle shops at the same tailor as hammerhead does because he's dressed like a gangster from <laughs> a jimmy cagney movie and uh also while they're out there having dinner together we get to see overmind in his big <laughs> oversized yeah herman munster suit and uh, just fun stuff i think the the suit shows you that Gargoyle or Isaac is definitely self-conscious with his appearance because Beast does nothing to hide himself. Mm-hmm. And if Beast does nothing, and, and at this point, Beast is really popular. We saw, um, in, I think it's in the, is it in this issue where he gets a ton of fan mail? Oh yeah, that's when mm-hmm. Iceman shows up. He gets a ton of fan mail because people love him. And if he's out in public and he's with a guy that looks like a Gargoyle, I think that people would accept the Gargoyle because he... He's with Beast, and everyone loves Beast. But Isaac doesn't want to take that chance. He has to cover himself up. He hides his wings. He puts on the hat so that he is not as conspicuous, um, especially standing next to Beast and the Ten-Foot Man. And if you notice in the backgrounds of the panel, the bottom panel of 338, everybody is staring at them. The band is oh, staring yeah. at them. People at the other tables are staring at them. The couple dancing are staring at them. So they're highly conspicuous. That's right. And then as the as we move through this issue, he busts out his wings and he gets more and more comfortable with being himself. And I think Dolly is a part of that because if Dolly is okay, okay to be seen with him in public, then maybe it's not such a bad thing. Maybe he can bust out a little bit. Mm. You almost wonder what they're dancing to. I'm, I'm in my own personal headspace. It's the Charleston. all right so we go on to uh 123 yes let's do that okay so issue 123 this one the title of this is in its telling of elves and androids (laughs) Uh, yeah so strap yourself in we're going into the elf story again um but this is where we really start getting the big shift starting to take place as we build ourselves to 125 in terms of the new defenders. There's two stories going on here, really. Uh, I'll start with the first one where 
we have a dinner at Scarlet Witch and Vision's Place, where that gets interrupted as the first appearance of Cloud, as well as um, a character named Herodin, who's really kind of a creepy one, who has the power to rapidly age anyone she touches. Um, and with Kim DeMolder's inks, oh boy, that really, that mm-hmm. really works. Looks great. And then another one named Seraph, um, who's going to make an appearance in the um, in the next volume a lot more. And um, they're trying to steal uh, the synthesoid, uh, being the the vision, being the vision yep. for the purpose of bringing it to number one, who's part of the Secret Empire. We've dealt with the Secret Empire in the last volume of this, but then we got the other story, and that is where the original Defenders, Doctor Strange, Hulk. Namor and the Silver Surfer are brought before the tri- tribunal and they start going through time as we're getting a build up to what is actually going on with the tribunal and the elf with a gun and all this sort of stuff. Right. Best thing to say about this issue is the Kim DeMolder inks. Now, sometimes you have an artist that just seems to pair up perfectly with an inker and in my opinion when DeMolder's on this issue, it is the art just explodes. It just oh, yeah. is so much more visceral and lively. When I was a kid, I never really understood the inker role. Maybe because I was just I would just associate uh, you know, John Byrne is fantastic, George Perez fantastic. But uh, as a a person coming back to comics much later on, the inker has such a huge role to play that I never quite understood. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I want yeah. you to go all the way back uh, to page 296. This is the last page of issue 120. And look at this. This is a Jack Abel inked panel. And look at Gargoyle's head there. Mm. Nice, and, nice and round, <laughs> right? And then contrast oh. that with Kim, Kim DeMolder. Because this is still Don Perlin's pencils. But contrast Same that pencil. with Kim DeMolder's um, gargoyle on page 364 I know it's a, it's a bigger picture so you can put some more detail oh, into fantastic. it but it's just uh, that it, it just looks so much better he's got he's got form and he's got texture whereas that other one did are really not emphasize yeah and, uh, yeah it's, it's amazing it, it adds so much so much of this book delving a little bit more into this particular one the cover's fantastic. Again, this that Sandy Plunkett and uh, Bill Sinkevich cover. I love the little gag in the in the box in the the uh, barcode box. <laughs> <laughs> Let me out of this box. Yeah. Well, here's the other thing that we have in this issue. We should visit in the drop in on the Hulk at this point because now we're at the point where Hulk has Banner's brain. Yeah. So and that's been that's been referenced a couple of times in little editorial boxes saying this story takes place before Bruce Banner had his intelligence or something like that. It was yeah. weird though once we actually got to see that because within the context of this this volume there's no we don't see the change happen. It's all in the Hulk book. And so all of a sudden Hulk is speaking in full sentences. And the unfortunate part of this also is that we get the Hulk in the uh, in the tiny little bikini bottoms <laughs> at this point, or the uh, the underwear, the, the purple underwear. Yeah, I prefer Hulk in ripped jeans. Myself. Yeah, 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 the ragged pants for sure. I, I really quite enjoyed this particular period in the Hulk, though, in his own comic. 
so it's a shame. It was a shame for me at least that we didn't get more of the Intelligent Hulk. I think that that brings a lot to the table. Other things that we get out of this issue: uh, Moon Dragon, who's going to join the team in one twenty-five. Right. What are your thoughts on Moon Dragon? Never really cared for her. She's just got a bad attitude. Never really liked her costume. Um, she was mm. always a character as a kid. I was embarrassed to let my mom see. <laughs> <laughs> Magnificent. <laughs> yeah. I've always loved Moon Dragon. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm one of the Moon Dragon support club <laughs> well, fan page. You know, the my only real experience with Moon Dragon is um, some of Starlin's stuff. And that's about it. So if Moondragon can be redeemed within the pages of New Defenders, then I'm all for it. Uh, so we'll see. Oh, we'll see what happens. If you don't like Moondragon, you're not going to like her going forward. <laughs> she is... <laughs> okay. The, the things I love about Moondragon are the things that are going to carry over. And what I love about Moondragon... Now, I first came to Moondragon in the issues of the, uh, of the Avengers yeah. where she was there. But I love her because as a character, she introduces so much drama among the teammates. She's arrogant. She's highly sexualized in a way that was I was scandalized by when I was a kid. <laughs> kind of like you. Embarrassed For sure. Absolutely. From my mom to see it. Yep. But what I love about her is she's very confident in her sexuality despite the fact that she's a bald lady. And it never is much of an issue. Yeah, she's... She's bald. She doesn't try to wear a hat. Doesn't cover up or anything. She's right. She's just all about Moon Dragon. Fantastic. Full I, of confidence. I, yeah. I just I always pop whenever I see Moon Dragon in a in a book. So another reason why I'm so excited for the uh, the the future <laughs> when we get to vol- the next volume of this uh, the, the New Defenders. Some things to point out on this issue is. Um, if you look at page 362, you get that point I was making about just how creepy this Haradin character is as she rapidly ages both uh, the Beast and Iceman there, um, right. just turning them into decrepit-looking uh, old men. Luckily for them, I guess it's only a temporary thing. W- one thing I was disappointed in, we get this nice kitchen scene, domestic scene with uh, Vision and Scarlet Witch. But unfortunately, Vision's not wearing one of his turtlenecks <laughs> in domestic clothes, which I always love when he's doing that. Yeah. I, I also liked the fact that Beast assumed it was Wanda who cooked the meal. And Vision said, actually, I cooked the meal. Um, just a nice little bit of a role reversal there um, mm-hmm. for your typical you know, male and female domestic roles, which uh, Beast assumed and, and assumed incorrectly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm a stay-at-home dad myself, so I get that uh, all the time. Oh, okay. Are you the cook, uh, the main cook of the family? Yep. I can cook a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and that's about it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Fantastic. The final page on this one brings us to where we are with this tribunal. So we've taken the four core through time. And the last page is one of these big suspense pages because this elf takes them to what looks like a desolate planet and says, because you four jerks caused it. <laughs> yeah, this is Earth in the 24th century. And it's so a little bit down the line. Yep, yep. Yeah, a few, few years away, I guess. 
But apparently, whatever is going to take the Earth out 400 years from now, it's going to be the Defender's fault, or at least the four core, yeah. as I like to call them. Um, and that brings us to the big conclusion story of this uh, story with the Tribunal. Yep. 124. This has one of the best covers. I really, really like this cover. Um, I don't know why Archangel's on it, or Angel, sorry. I don't know why Angel's on it, because he's not in this issue at all, but it's a really nice cover. And uh, I, I, honestly, I hated this issue. Mm. I absolutely didn't like it, because it was so, it was all exposition. It was all telling a story that I didn't care about, trying to make something work in order to get these characters out of here that made little sense yeah i wish i could defend this i can't uh, so uh, to wrap it up we have apparently what's going to happen in the 24th century is some aliens who have a really goofy looking design to them who are supposed to be peaceful but they have no trouble pulling out guns and abducting humans to suck off their energy towards their prince <laughs> we're supposed to believe that they're peaceful <laughs> end up killing themselves because at the end of the day they don't want to hurt the defenders yeah <laughs> and so that's how that's why we have to uh, retire the old defenders in the new in the next issue 125 and bring in a brand new defenders because they want to avoid this terrible fate from potentially happening it gets a little convoluted so apparently there's a story in the past where they met one of these aliens and the alien died, and so in order to treat the alien with respect, they buried the alien. But in this alien culture, that's not a good thing to do at all. So they've been the, the aliens have been looking for this missing alien buddy of theirs, and they their scans revealed that his his remains have been desecrated by being just buried in the in the ground. And so they blame the defenders for it. And so I guess what's going to happen in the next issues, we're going to find out that if they can, I, can we skip ahead to the next issue already? Might as well. <laughs> they, um, it, it's, it's so strange because it, if um, they need to not bury that character in order to stop the end of the world from coming, because the, these aliens are going to blame earth for, for all of the deaths of these people that, that encounter the defenders and so if the defenders the original defenders never speak to each other ever again they'll this future will never happen it's just one of many possible outcomes so they have to never be defenders ever again and that's the way that Demetrius decides to write them out of the story yeah not not a satisfying end it's not it's it's really not i can understand why he doesn't want to to deal with these four characters anymore because they all have their own books at the time. And the Silver Surfer is going to have his book, his own book, in a short time after this. Yeah. And so he, especially with the events of the Hulk being intelligent and stuff, he has no control over what's actually happening to these characters because all of that stuff's happening in the main titles. So instead, he gets rid of those guys and he fills his team up with characters that don't have their own books. So he has free control over everything that happens to them, which is great. 
Uh, I think that's a smart move. Unfortunately, I don't like the way that he dismissed these four characters. No, and having to deal with the stupid elf as well is just yeah. infuriating <laughs> because everything that uh, some folks are turned off with uh, about Deadpool in modern comic books, in the, in the comic books in particular, the movies are fantastic. I love them. But you know, breaking the fourth wall, uh, this elf does all the time. And with big, long boxes, too, that he just keeps babbling on and on and on about. Yeah. Um, so issue 125, um, the title of which is Hello, I Must Be Going, or Mad Dog and the Elvish Men. <laughs> <laughs> this comes from November of 1983. This is the first issue that's titled, actually titled The New Defenders. Oh, you're right. That's a spectacular cover, too. Yeah, it's really good. This yeah, is, uh, the last Carl Potts and Sienkiewicz. Yeah, that's an interesting combo. Yeah, they don't usually work together. But the, the previous issue actually said the end, but it was to be continued. It was literally in the middle of a story. It's weird that it said the end, and we continue here. I thought when I first saw this volume, I'm like, why, are they, why isn't two, 125 the beginning of the next volume? Because it's the beginning of the New Defenders. But it really isn't. It's really the end of the old Defenders. Yeah. So it's actually the perfect place to, to end this volume. So the big key on this, again, this is a, an issue that has two stories kind of running side by side. We get the return of these or uh, more about what the aliens that the larger alien empire that the ones that committed suicide in the last issue were going to do. Um, that's a hard one to kind of even wrap your head around because you don't even know if this is going to really happen or not happen because it's all just kind of been made irrelevant anyway. So it's not even worth spending too much time with them, the silly aliens. But the conclusion is that the old defenders have to retire, which they agreed to do. But the key point of this issue is really going to be where we get the wedding of Hellcat and Damon. Yes. And... um I have to say I'm a little disappointed in how that goes off. Yeah, I was too. Especially like the actual scene where they say I do. It's like they're not even the focus of that panel. Mm. Where Where is that? <laughs> Let me see here on page. Is it 417? I do on page that. 2. Uh, yeah, 428. 428. On okay. page 428 is the top panel. It's where they actually have the ceremony you may kiss the bride they're in the background in blue yes. and we can't they're even so get a right. good look and then the reaction of uh, the, the reaction is not even focused on them it's focused on the beast and starting the new team mm -hmm. they really downplay the wedding which I was kind of disappointed by because we've been building to that for a little while now it really is the other thing I found disappointing about this is so the wedding's going to get crashed. All good weddings in Marvel have to be crashed. Yep. And so we get um, Mad Dog, who is the original villain, ex-husband of Hellcat, of Patsy. Right. And he joins up with this, this group that's the mutant force, and they're going to be appearing fairly consistently throughout the new 
defenders uh, run. Oh, really? <laughs> Too bad. Uh, yeah. With, with these great character names like Lifter <laughs> 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 and Slither. Uh, oof. 90s have nothing on these guys with their naming uh, conventions. These are like He-Man rejects. The guy with the lobster claws, um, this, their outfits and stuff. It's very much Masters of the Universe 80s kind of designs. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're referring to Paralyzer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe Burner, who cares <laughs> at this point. I don't even remember. But the, but the disappointing thing about this, this should be the culmination of Hellcat's story. Here she gets to step up to her ex-husband as she's getting ready to embrace the new life with the new husband. Yeah. Yet she is easily swept aside in the combat. And really the combat is won first by uh, Moon Dragon, who's only just kind of appeared with the group and already started causing tension. But then more profoundly, of course, by Damon Hellstrom, which for me was just felt so unsatisfactory. I mean, this is her villain. This yeah. is her moment to get out from underneath the shadow of this horrible, abusive ex-husband of hers. And she is she reduced to, to the damsel in distress. That's right. Yeah, that is disappointing. Yeah. Mm. Uh, if, only, uh, if only they could have given her a little bit more agency in this issue. But again, it speaks to a criticism I've had of, of her throughout the Defenders. Right. In that she just never really had her great moment to shine. She was always an emotional heart she was always a welcome presence but they just never gave her a chance to kick butt and that's unfortunate although otherwise though we have all of our our players in place now uh in order to move forward into the new defenders angel happens to show up and (laughs) i love it when they say (laughs) um Patsy and Damon are getting married, and they're like, yay, yay. Oh, wait a minute, who's that? Because <laughs> they, <laughs> they haven't been around for very long. <laughs> That's great. Oh, yeah, here it is yeah. on page 404. By the way, um, by the way, Bob, who are Patsy and Damon? Darn if I know. <laughs> In a scene where they're uh, dancing with each other with, uh, with barely any clothes on. <laughs> yeah, which has to be what I get <laughs> the subtext. Yeah. And one of the most dubious costumes ever is Iceman in the new Defenders when he's not iced up. Yeah. And he's just wearing the tidy whities and the white boots. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. It's, yeah. This the, this whole introduction to Angel here where he's like, he just shows up. He's in his pajamas. I guess he's been sleeping there. But they just like tackle him. Beast isn't wearing any clothing either. He's just covered in fur so you don't, don't notice it as well. But they're all <laughs> just kind of wearing Speedos. Uh, again, <laughs> I guess yep. it's just, uh, you know, just the dudes hanging out. That's right. Uh, dudes will be dudes. And finally, at the end, at least we get to say goodbye to the stupid darn elves. And if memory serves correctly, we'd never see them again. Wonderful. Now, there are some people who can pull this off, these elves off. Like, I know that in that uh, in Generation X, Scott Lobdell and Chris Bicello will put little things like elves telling stories in their issues as little side characters talking to the talk, talking to the reader and they mm-hmm. do it really really well but it's used sparingly and it's only for like one issue mm. so this was a little bit too much yeah just a little bit just a little bit 
Um, so any uh, thoughts on uh, impressions at the end of uh, this particular volume? I'm kind of disappointed that it ended the way that it did. The The whole alien old Defenders storyline was a real drag because it was just one person telling a long-winded story the entire time. It was not interesting. And yeah. uh, But I am excited to see what happens next. Good. Now that Good. we have that out of the way, because we have an interesting mix of characters and we're changing the team dynamic by trying to make them official. And I think that uh, it, there's a lot to offer. I hope the listeners are... I'm going to have a bit more of an open mind than traditional Defenders fans are when we get into the new Defenders because I keep I keep going back to this, but there is a lot to enjoy with the new Defenders. Nice. As I understand it, when they switched the sales of the title, which were sort of starting to slip, ended up getting a real big bump when Angel, Iceman, and, um, and the Beast uh, kind of joined on up. Probably, again, those fantastic covers I've mentioned a few times um, helped to really boost the sales of this. Yeah, well, and these are X-Men that we're talking about. And the popularity of these characters, it it, it was pretty solid, even though they didn't have, they weren't in any book at the time. And mm-hmm. people were really interested in the X-Men at this point because the X-Men were going on, but the original X-Men weren't there. So what were what was happening with these characters? People wanted to know. And I think you can tell that they were popular because shortly after this, um, Iceman gets his own miniseries and the mm-hmm. Beast gets his own miniseries. So obviously there's definitely uh, reason for, for that to happen. They're popular and people want to read more about these X-Men, which is probably why the title morphed into X-Factor after anyway. <laughs> Yeah, well, hmm. <laughs> I was disappointed with that. But, yeah, uh, when you guys did the coverage of uh, of X Factor, it was you guys did justice to it. Uh, I was uh, I was able to put aside some of my bitterness and enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's with those ones. It's the same with X Force Volume One. When when something is hated so popular popularly, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. If if it's if it's cool to hate something. You got to look at it objectively. I like to look at it objectively and find out, like, is there a reason to actually hate it? Most cases, yes, there is. But then what are the things that you like about it, too? And that's how I'm going to move forward with the new Defenders. All right. I think that we have said what needs to be said, Curtis. I think so. Thank you for uh, bringing me through this book and helping me understand these characters a little bit better. Um, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to talk uh, Defenders with you. Always a pleasure. I... Love talking Defenders, and um, I'm always enthusiastic to do so. (laughs) Good. Well, I think the next time that you are going to be on the show, I'm going to try and wrangle you and Chris Russ together for an episode of the Avengers Defenders War. Oh. And so that'll be fun to talk about the early days of the Defenders. And then after that, I think you and I want to try and tackle a volume of Master of Kung Fu. Oh, yes. One of the great hidden gems of the 1970s. I'm really looking forward to this because I've never read it and people only have good things to say about it. So, I, uh, yeah, I'm really excited to start reading that book. Um, hopefully we'll get to that maybe in 
the summertime or yeah maybe late summer i can't remember what my schedule looks like but and then we'll go back into defenders after that so a little bit of a defenders break fantastic right on fantastic perfect all right thanks for having me yeah my pleasure and uh we'll see everybody in the next episode bye-bye